0: Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed from young people with dreams to adult people living those dreams or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Orny Adams played coach Bobby Finstock for six seasons on MTV's Teen Wolf. But to comedy fans, Orny is famously and infamously known as the co-star of Jerry Seinfeld's documentary Comedian. While Seinfeld developed a new hour of stand-up from scratch, Comedian followed Orny's obsessive path as an aspiring comedian, making his debut as a new face at Just for Laughs in Montreal. Orny has since performed multiple times at JFL, and his newest hour, More Than Loud, debuts in December 2017 on Showtime. This interview is even more than you're expecting. Look out, Oprah. So let's get to it! Orney Adams, take three. And people, people, people allege your high maintenance. I don't see it. No, no. no. I would say uh, I like to control a situation, and that's what we just saw. Uh, I was so I'm, you've changed so much in the last twenty years. Well,
1: I, I was distracted by the guy on the couch. Yeah, he's gone now. Okay, now we can relax. And-
0: so, speaking of uh, lack of control, your most recent set on Conan on TBS was something. I haven't seen a lot of people do, which is to just really uh, obliterate the stage metaphorically and just take over the panel in a stand-up set. Was that something you had planned out? And so J.P. Buck and the camera people were ready for you to move around, or was that a spontaneous?
1: I don't think the camera people were prepared. you know, I, I grew up watching like Robin Williams and just being blown away. Like there was a guy that uh, when he was on any show I had to watch because I didn't know what was going to happen. Right, he wasn't
0: going to stay in his seat for panel.
1: Right. He would go into the audience like a Jim Carrey. Uh, and I like, I like people that work big like a Sam Kennison. And uh, so I, I had the, the, the uh, fortunate situation of having to uh, uh, get to talk to Conan before um, I went out. And I said, um, you know, I introduced myself and I said, you know, I'm from Boston. And we sort of discussed that. And we hadn't met before. And I actually oh, really? had seen him uh, at the uh, Gary Shandling Memorial. And I wanted to, you know, introduce myself. But the, the opportunity didn't come up. And I'm a you know, fan of Conan's work. And I wanted to say hi. And I said, uh, I asked him if he was familiar with my what I do. And he wasn't. And I said, you know, I I, I can go really big. And I said, it's your show and I don't want to you know invade your space or seem disrespectful and he said go as big as you want and uh, he said just have fun and he said you're doing me a favor because the five minutes you're out there is five minutes I don't have to fill and so um, I don't think any of us knew I was gonna land at the end sitting on the stage or what was gonna happen (laughs) right and to be honest with you uh, it was a lot darker than I would have expected so if I ever went back I would be much more prepared so I, I guess I should explain to you that I considered uh, what I did on Conan a, a fail that wasn't oh, really okay. yeah that's not something I'm I was happy with um, I feel like I didn't understand where the audience was I it, you sort of play towards an area where the audience isn't there's this tunnel and I ended up playing towards what turned out to be camera guys once my eyes adjusted right so it wasn't it wasn't something that uh, and, and I'm also doing something. I do a mic technique where I don't hold the microphone near me and I wave it around, and it works really well in a live situation. And we, I prepared sound for. It. I mean, this is now very technical. Do your oh no, we love we care? love technical. Yeah. Okay, so deep into the weeds. Okay, okay, then I will. I'll, I'll <laughs> indulge. Uh, so I, when I work in clubs and even in theaters up to three thousand people, I can yell off microphone and it can be picked up, and so. With Conan, I said, "Let's let's put a lav mic on me, and this was going to be a test for when I shoot my special, which I just, you know, I just, I had the opportunity to do. So let's have a lav mic with 30% house projection, and let's have a handheld with 70%, and I'll self-modulate in between. So if Mm -hmm. I go like this." I don't know how it sounded on on your recorder, but it should sound like I'm throwing the mic away and my mic- so this becomes the microphone becomes an instrument for me to uh, you know punctuate certain portions of my show. Right. And on Conan what happened was when I got out there the the mics were at even level. So it wasn't working and it was completely throwing me off and it sounds just like you know if you watch it you're going to say, "Well, what, what why does he even have a handheld?" Because he's off microphone, <laughs> it sounds the exact same, and it shouldn't, so you know, when we shot my special, we, we did it exactly the way, and I have a guy mixing it right now, and mm-hmm. it's a nightmare because he has to go through the entire 80 minutes and he has to look when I'm on mic and when I'm not on mic and modulate it that way and also make it sound good for television. So it's something that I don't know if anybody's ever had to mix live before like this, but that's part of what
0: I do to keep it sort of interesting. Right. Has that always been an issue for you keeping keeping it interesting, whether it's the stand-up material itself or the career big picture i'll I'll get bored up there, and
1: you know my the people that you know I look up to or was taking from artistically, you know one of them was uh, Mick Jagger and you know. I always would look at making look at the outfits and the way he moved on stage and I could say, you know, you could say I don't like this guy's music, but you can't deny something's happening up there. So I think of, for me, what I try and achieve when I'm on stage besides just being funny is being interesting and texturing my performance. So there's, you know, anger, winks to camera, there's frustrations, there's levity, there's moments where I'm just so completely in the moment, we're all laughing together. And, you know, even for my special, I didn't know, I knew what I wanted to get across within the hour, Mm -hmm. which turned into a 90 minute performance, but it could have gone anyway. And I could have walked out and said something different. And if I walked out, uh, the second show I would have started, or or a third show would have started differently than the second one or the first one, we ended up taping too. So to me, you have to have that sort of spontaneity. And to keep it interesting. So I'm not just up there by rote, just, you know,
0: repeating jokes and saying things. So, you know, you mentioned being a, a kid from the Boston area. But you ended up going to school down in Atlanta? Yeah. Did, how much How much did you know about the comedy scenes in either Boston or Atlanta when you were in well, those formative teen college years? Did you... Yeah, I mean... Were you, you paying any attention to it at that point or not yet?
1: Yeah, I mean, you, you uh, from a young kid, of course. I mean, Boston has such a rich... Comedy tradition. And so those guys who probably have influenced me uh, very much because, you know, Boston's a fast talking city. Oh, yeah. Don and, Gavin. Yeah, yeah. Sweeney, Gavin, <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, the, um, Lenny Clark. Lenny, you know. yeah, all those guys. And Stephen Wright, who was, you know, uh, who I never worked with. But these guys were just so funny and just naturally funny because it's like a, you know, working class community and all of Boston is really funny. And I I grew up with that rich tradition. And when I started doing comedy, I started in Atlanta, Georgia, where I went to school. Uh, I auditioned at the Funny Bone. I would auditioned in the middle of the day for somebody sitting in the back of the room and doing jokes. And, and then they
0: gave me a night on a Tuesday. And then I hosted a week. And uh, Were you still in college at the time? Yeah. How yeah. did you already know? Because you're not taking classes in comedy or communications, right? You were, no. I mean, what were you studying? I was studying political
1: science and philosophy, but that's mostly because I, I registered late because my dad didn't uh, send the check-in in on time, so I couldn't sign up for the first classes I wanted to, mm-hmm. and so all that was left was philosophy, so I became a philosophy major, which was fine. I mean, fine. that works for comedy. Sure, sure, I mean. What, different way of looking at life? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I just naturally look at life a certain way, and you know, in, high school, I was researching comedy. You know, I would listen to, uh, it was Kinnison, and we had, and people were passing around Kinnison tapes, and Dice tapes, and Eddie Murphy raw, mm. and I would study, when I got to college, I was studying Robin Williams and Woody Allen, and I would count the beats in the jokes, and how many laughs per second, and I'd write it down. I would take Woody Allen's routine, and I'd handwrite it out, so I could see what it looked like written out, and uh, you know my early stuff was very Woody Allen-ish and you sort of I think we start doing comedy a lot of guys
0: sort of you know sound like somebody or emulate somebody right and then sort of come into their own I heard of, when I was dabbling in comedy in the late 90s there were a lot of people doing Mitch Hedberg oh yeah Mitch Hedberg Dane Cook or David tell yeah, <laughs> Those yeah. like the three big ones that people were yeah yeah, obviously right. influenced by Uh uh-huh. yeah
1: so how'd you get a night the funny, Not a night, you know, like I was emceeing or okay. you, you meaning I got, I got a spot on a show or something okay. on a Tuesday. Um, and it's funny because I always say I've never auditioned for a club before, but I guess I did. I guess the first club I ever did. But after that, you know, in Boston, I, there were no open mics. We would just we'd jump on Anthony Clark's show on Wednesday or Gavin's show would be like the, the Thursday at the uh, Comedy Connection. And then, uh, uh, you know, who, whoever, they all had shows. The headliner would host. and then we'd go up and there was a group of us and it was uh it was it was just it was doing comedy for the sake of doing comedy none of us were thinking what's our five minute development set now none of us were thinking what are we wearing does this say the right thing thinking about our jokes and it was uh it was it was so beautiful it was probably the best time in my career
0: so you Went back to Boston... Over the summer. Okay. And then
1: I was the uh, rich college kid doing comedy with the guys who, uh, you know... How did they feel about that? I, I, You know, it's funny... Did they
0: know you were the rich college kid or did yeah, they just they, think you were
1: a kid? Well, I was from Lexington
0: and Lexington mm-hmm.
1: is considered a
0: the right. rich, rich community. Uh, Lexington and Concord. Yeah. Revolutionary towns, but also affluent suburbs.
1: Yeah, and, and heavy on education. And, uh, you know, I go back there and it seems very stripped down to me compared to Los Angeles. But, you know, these guys... They weren't. They don't go to college, and you know, I, 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 I don't know what their parents did, but you know, they were there, and they were, you know, I, I, I never felt like I was part of a group in comedy. I never had uh, a group of comedy friends. I never took the time to really ingratiate myself and stick around. I, I always, uh, which is sort of a regret of mine, because you know, uh, I tell young young comics when you're starting out, you know, get to know your your peers and hang out and. Uh, you'll you'll get more from them in terms of writing and connections and stuff like that and uh, I don't know if I had an if it was an arrogance or a shyness or an awkwardness but I I did my work and I sort of went home I didn't stick around and have drinks and
0: and right because the young people at the time the other people our age because we're the same age the other people our age in Boston then included like Dane Cook Robert Kelly Billy Burr mm-hmm Patrice, Patrice
1: Neil, Gary Goldman. Yeah, I mean it was such so a. So you rich...
0: saw them, but you weren't hanging out with them. Um, you know, or did I, you even know? I, were you so like outside of it that you weren't even paying attention to the other young people? I was actually uh, pr- pretty close with Dane at mm-hmm. the time, and and when I uh, moved to New York City,
1: Dane was in the U-Haul with me. Okay, um, and Bill was very close with Patrice, and um, I, I, I will say this: I always felt respected by those guys and I had uh, it was a mutual respect and you know I'm proud to have really started out with those guys you know I had recently was talking to Bill and I said uh I said uh you know our, our class and he said you're the class after me and I go well all right well now that you're so successful that makes me feel better that uh, you know all right I still have a class to go right. so I don't know who's in my class maybe Goldman uh <laughs> But uh, their class was very successful. I kind of wanted right. to be part of that class, I guess.
0: <laughs> at the but, reunion? But it's true. <laughs> when they had the 25th reunion of the yeah, Boston class?
1: Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't think those guys are mentioning me in podcasts. That's what. Right. uh But, that's, but th-
0: like you just said, though, that's partially your fault. or your, That was your choice at the time was to just go straight home and no, not, no, no, and no, no, not no, no. ingratiate yourself.
1: Ye- yes, in one sense, yes. In another sense, if I was a... Um, I would not say hot. If I was hot, a mm-hmm. hot comic, then they would certainly mention me. Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, right. Then it would be like, oh, they—they'd be excited that they had worked with me. So there isn't that sort of. They don't. It's uh,
0: well by the other by the other side of the the coin, you're also not so infamous enough that they mention you in a in a degrading way. Yes. And, oh, and horny was also there.
1: Yeah. Well, I would think that if you brought my name up to the, uh, any of them, that they, you know, would uh, would uh, have nice things to say. Would, so when you moved down
0: to New York City, I will say
1: this about Patrice. Yeah. This always fascinated me, and this, I mean, this goes oh, uh, even when we all moved to New York and mm-hmm. worked there. And Patrice would just go after people. It was ruthless. He never picked on me.
0: Never. Interesting.
1: And I don't know if that's uh, you know because he enjoyed what i was doing I, I don't know what it is but i would see him really go after people at the comedy mm-hmm. cellar and then he just didn't uh
0: and you know i took a, i took pride in that hmm. so when you moved down to new york city in the u-haul with dane mm-hmm. what was your plan for how new york city was going to go for you Did you have a plan, like a five-year plan or
1: a two-year plan? No, because comics didn't really think like that. You just sort of, you know, you were doing comedy for the sake of comedy. If you could make a living, that was great. Now, I had been flown from Boston to Los Angeles by Disney to to be looked at for development, and that's what got me to New York. People in New York wanted to know who I was. That's why I never auditioned for any of the clubs there, and that was kind of, you know, that was kind of cool. But no... If you would ask me at the time, would I be where I am now? No, no. It would have happened a lot quicker. I would have been right. in movies and had my own show and all that sort of stuff. Um, so, no. But there's no, there's no like, mapping it out. There's no vision board. There's no... I just want to get on it, stand up the cellar. I want to tell people I'm a comic, and I want to stand out and be the best that right. I can be and work my ass off.
0: Was... I mean, this being the mid-90s, of course, New Faces in Montreal was... Mm-hmm. Still kind of the be-all, end-all because mm-hmm. they were still giving out right. big cash prizes. Yeah. So when, the, when Seinfeld and his people came and offered you, did, what, did, what did they say to you? Did, did you know what, yeah, I what mean, you were signing up for?
1: Well, what happened was Seinfeld, I was now a comic working in New York City, every single club doing 20-plus shows a weekend. So think about that, a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I could do over 20 shows. I was stand-up, seller, Gotham, uh, comic strip. I just keep going in a circle,
0: okay? Yeah, there's always a handful of those guys yeah. who you see everywhere. And, and I you was, were one of those guys Yeah. in the and, late 90s.
1: And I, So that to me was like, well, if you can make it there, you, you make it anywhere, that, that's it. I had achieved it and nothing could stop me and I was getting a little following, and people were coming out to see me, and I felt like I was a, uh, a, a you know, a big part of that night or that show. Maybe I was closing the show, whatever it is. What could, uh, what could, what could take away from that? Well, the Seinfeld guy decides to start hitting the clubs again, and now he's bumping me. So if I have people coming out to see me, this is humiliating. They're there to see me on the eight o'clock show at Stand Up New York, mm-hmm. and Seinfeld comes, and all of a sudden it's not about me at all. Like, the club doesn't get nobody cares. It's Seinfeld, right. which I totally get, but it's irritating when you see this guy going up on stage, and you think this isn't even that good, because he was working on new stuff. I don't know if he's working on new stuff. I don't know what he was doing. I can't remember. But he had this camera crew with him, mm-hmm. and I—if I went to a club and I saw that goddamn camera crew, I knew it wasn't good for me. And I tend to speak my mind. And they had the cameras rolling one time. They said, "Can we film you?" And I said, "Sure." They go, "We keep bumping into you." Mm-hmm. I go, "Yeah, you do." <laughs> and they said, uh, "What do you think of uh, What do you think of Jerry's new act?" Mm-hmm. And I said, I gotta be honest with you, I'm not, uh, I'm not that impressed. I said, it's the old style, things have changed, things have gotten faster, uh, it's uh, not exciting to me. And uh, they showed Seinfeld that tape and they said, you gotta follow this guy. He's the only guy who would ever say that that would have the balls to say that. And um, they started following me. And I knew that Seinfeld was watching the tapes and was a fan of mine behind the scenes and I ended up signing with George, and I felt
0: very protected, and uh, you know, that was how I got in. So, your understanding is you're you're somehow just going to be talking on this thing, and then when the movie comes out, mm-hmm. what did you think? I thought it was great, yeah. What happened after that, for, career-wise for you? Well, you know, I… Did be- you think, oh, this is great, I'm in a movie with Jerry Seinfeld. Yes. Mm -hmm. Obviously, this is gonna get me a lot of stuff. Well, you know, first of all, you're,
1: uh, unbeknownst to me, because I didn't know the business. So, if I knew the business, I would have known that signing with uh, George Shapiro would not have the impact that I thought. I I thought you signed with the manager, and then that's it. Right. And And a manager
0: of that caliber. You've got Seinfeld's manager, he's gonna make me the next Seinfeld. Right, here we go. We're off, off and running,
1: right? And uh, I also, sat there and watched it with Seinfeld every time I watched it. And he was laughing. He loved it. He was repeating my lines. Mm-hmm. He said, you know, do the lines in sync with me. And he hit, hit me in the ribs with his elbow and say, I was the exact same way. I used to say the exact same things. Just nobody caught me on tape. So I felt protected. Mm-hmm. And um what happened was we and we were working together and we were doing shows and we're doing theaters i think we're doing a big theater in uh baltimore and this is before the internet for the most part i guess because i went to the train station maybe i was going to take the train back to new york and i bought every single newspaper because comedian had come out in the reviews and i sat there reading it going oh my god people don't like me in this thing and not only do they not like me these hacks are all writing the same thing, meaning they're using the same phraseology, as if one person wrote something and then everyone just sort of like, oh, let's grab that. Mm-hmm. Like almost if it had gone in another direction. And um, I think that had this movie been a huge, or documentary, a huge success, it would have played out differently for the sure, because it doesn't matter who or what you are if it's a success. Right. So the fact that it wasn't a
0: success, you know, everyone just abandoned ship it might have been a different thing if it came out now because of social media mm-hmm. but like you said in 2002 there was the internet but it wasn't used the same way we also so, didn't know about reality shows and how right. things
1: are edited and what you have to understand is, right
0: that's right reality shows are still a very novel new concept yeah
1: and, and what you have to understand is uh you know it's a documentary documentary uh whose main subject is the executive producer so he's the hero of the documentary. So think about that. If, if I'm paying you, you know. Right. And I can tell you this much, that there was certainly a different version before Merrimax picked it up for distribution. Okay. And there was a different ending, and there were more moments of me doing stand-up in it. And so uh, I feel like there was a shift once it went there to sort of create more of a contrast between right. me and contrast jerry
0: and make you kind of he's the hero of the story you're the arch nemesis or which is fine that's fine I, but, but i didn't even
1: understand that i didn't right. even understand At storytelling right. no I, I i get it now right. i don't begrudge anybody they're trying to they're you know they're creating a story this is this is show business this isn't listen a real documentary might be boring as hell but you you've got to captivate people you've got to create a story so you know where i bump into jerry at stand up new york you know what i mean this big moment that's all orchestrated right right do people get that you know this is
0: this is you could take made for not tv made for the movies
1: I could film you for 10 hours, and I could ruin your life. I know I could. I could put together five minutes with the right music and the right one, and I could ruin you. You've said enough in 10 hours that I could ruin you. And so if you want to, so listen, I signed up for this. I said all that stuff. I had that. That, that is me. You know what I mean?
0: That's so I, I, I'm fine with all. I mean, obviously, it didn't ruin you, but did you feel like it took you a while to get to where you thought you should be? Isn't that beautiful, though?
1: Isn't that beautiful? If that was the, struggle? the case, oh. yeah. Yeah, I mean, beautiful things come from struggle. You know, uh, if I was sitting uh, on top of the world with a really shitty act, uh, that would bum me out. I, 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 you know, I think everything really happens for a reason. I've always wanted to have this discussion with
0: Oprah. I feel like she's the one to have it. I, I do feel like we'll send this. We'll send this recording to her and and then when she sets you down, she'll ask you the real question. Yeah. This will be the pre-interview that, for is, Oprah. I
1: thought this was the pre-interview for Oprah. <laughs> this is the pre-interview for Oprah. That's what I thought. Oprah. Isn't that the name of this po- podcast? The Oprah's pre-interview. Pre-interviews. <laughs> that would be a great name. <laughs> I don't, nothing bothers me if it makes my act stronger.
0: So where were you at when the Teen Wolf offer came about? Were you, were you thinking? Oh, I'm. you know, I've, I've put out a couple specials at this point. I feel like I'm working steadily. I, I get invited back to Montreal multiple times. Maybe I should do a series, or was this something that completely came out of the blue? Came out of the blue. There
1: was a guy, uh, Jeff Davis, who created the show. We also created Criminal Minds on CBS. Was, uh, unbeknownst to me, a fan of my comedy, and he used to come see me uh, at the Improv in Los Angeles. And... Uh, and watch me and sometimes when there's movement in the audience or there's talking or the waitresses are too loud I just stop and I stare at him and uh, he said that's my coach that's the guy who's gonna play coach and he called my manager at the time and my manager said uh, hey you know this guy Jeff Davis called he's creating the show it's uh, gonna be a pilot on MTV and uh, he thinks you'd be great for the coach I go "That sounds like an offer and he said, no, 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 you, you, you got to audition and uh, it shoots next week in Atlanta. I said, well, send me the script. I read the script. I got it immediately. The, the guy knows how to write. And the character was just, you know, perfect for mm-hmm. me. I, I got it. And um, so I read it and I, I went to uh, the coffee shop. I read it, called my manager. I go, uh, I said, uh, I get it. Let's, uh, let's move forward. He goes, I'll call him and I'll tell him you, you can come in tomorrow and audition. I go, no, no, no. This, this is what I mean, like, when I thought having a manager or age, you know, you, you got to be on top of your stuff here if you're going to you know, be out here. Mm-hmm. I said, no, 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 Listen to me. You call Jeff Davis and you say these words. Orny will be in Atlanta next week to shoot. What day do you need him there? No, no, no! It's a pie. Everybody has to, I said, no, listen to me.
0: <laughs> listen to me. You're already method acting as the you,
1: coach, <laughs> right? You, you assume that you assume you you assume it. You assume mm. the clothes, and that's what I said. I, and so they called up, and that was it. I got the offer. I flew in, and uh, you know, it's like my comedy career. I didn't have to audition for comedy. I didn't have to audition. For, you know, anything I audition mm-hmm. for, I'm not going to get. So you know, this this. <laughs> It was.
0: It was uh, such i I'm friends with your agent. I just imagine the phone calls between you and Adam. Oh, it's uh,
1: Adam. <laughs> Adam is a saint. And edit this part out. But um, he he transformed my career. He really did. He's uh, he's he is a guy who believes in me beyond mm-hmm. anything I could ever imagine, and takes uh, the role of uh, manager and a friend, and is so supportive. And I, I I have such trust for him. I I can only hope. Anybody who has representation has one one-hundredth of what Adam and I have. Here's a guy who said, give me uh, a year. Mm-hmm. This is what he said to me. He said, give me a year and do exactly what I say. You're going to hate me. You're going to hate the places I send you to, but uh, there's a reason for this. Give me one year, and I will double your income the next year. And year after year, he doubled the income. Oh, and wow. He, he he is he's amazing. So, But he knows how to deal with with me now mm-hmm. you know believe me there have been plenty of yelling matches and, and hanging up on each other and it uh, feels like we're dating sometimes
0: so did I take and edit it that all that I, out. I take it
1: that's garbage <laughs> that is such garbage
0: I take it Teen Wolf didn't completely alter your audience yeah, uh, yeah. or did it no it, it, didn't bring so f- the, it didn't bring the young teenagers out to see, no, it, it does. To see coach oh yeah but, not oh, enough. but that was not in a-
1: no it's not like listen you know my, my online uh my my social media following is really big and these people like it's so funny they they don't come to shows so if i was growing up and you said uh hey fonzie's doing stand-up i go F- fonzie from happy days is doing i go we gotta go right this is gonna be amazing fonzie's doing stand-up. it might suck it might be great what is fonzie doing stand-up We i'd have to go right i go all over the world and do stand-up but let's just take the united states i could be in chicago and every comedy club is now in a mall or next to a mall okay and i'm walking around the mall during the day these kids there's video i've posted video on on the internet of kids screen they couldn't be more excited adults couldn't be more excited to meet me and take pictures nobody says hey what what are you doing in chicago nobody even asked (laughs) Right. <laughs> so then I. What are you doing in Minneapolis? Right. Right. What are you going at get the Mall of America? Right. Up there, up, right up, and, Edmonton, wherever it is. <laughs> nobody's. Nobody's second question is, "What are you doing here? Are you shooting something?" Are you, nobody. <laughs> nobody. So then I have to awkwardly bring up <laughs>
0: bark. You have to bark. Yeah, for yeah, your yeah, show. yeah.
1: Hey, hey, hey. By the way, I I'm at uh, I'm at the uh, the comic strip uh, this weekend, uh, Edmonton uh, comic strip, and the the look of just <laughs> like they're not going, huh? Like that that's it. Like you want to see the coach from TV? No, I was in Detroit. Even nobody wants... I mean, it's just I bump into people all the time, mm-hmm. and it doesn't it doesn't. Uh, You know, as much as I'd like to, but uh, they do come out. You know, I was in Detroit last weekend at uh, that Comedy Castle. One of you know, one of the just such a a a club so rich in history. It's been around a while. It's just like I'll tell you something. It's it's still an honor to work. Like there are some clubs that you just go. wow because everybody's been there it's just really cool and it tends to be owned by a you know uh you know like one guy who's been there forever hilarities in cleveland you yeah. know that guy nick owns it and mark ridley owns the castle these are these are great clubs even like the um the, the tradition of the uh, the improv in uh washington dc now all the other clubs i love working and i've become friends because i go back every year but to work these clubs is so rich in history but i'm there and there are you know Tons of Teen Wolf fans. Like they, they do come out, but it isn't like all of a sudden I've got
0: this younger audience that's coming out. You know, my audience is really mixed. Okay. And so now you've got this new hour coming out on Showtime. You're now trusting your agent. Do you feel like you're at a much different place now than you were five or ten years ago or a much better place? Mm. How, how do you feel about your, <laughs> your place in life and comedy now? Which, what aspect are we talking about? professionally
1: yeah but what we talk monetarily we talking about um, respect from others we're talking about my craft itself? What,
0: what matters what what aspect of that matters the most to you what matters at this am- point at this point
1: always craft first mm-hmm. craft what I do on stage level of writing the way I present it is the most important thing to me that I feel good up there and I enjoy it otherwise that doesn't come through to the audience. It's not a good show. So if I'm not enjoying it, I don't feel confident. I don't, you know, I'm not proud of what I'm doing. Delivery's off. It's a, it's a crappy show. From there, you hope that your, the community enjoys what you're doing and in, in, in respects and says, wow, this guy's working hard and he's not taking shortcuts. And, you know, it's a, you know, I, I like to write jokes where there are different entry points. So, like, you know, if I were to talk about something that is, uh derivative you know like oh, i would talk about gluten or something which is heavily covered it would be a different angle a different entry or exit point um and then the, and then the money then you want to be compensated and i'd say um i'd say that the, the biggest struggles in my career uh or are you know selling enough tickets you know that's and 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 uh that to me is is the toughest thing because it's uh you know, the, there's just so many more specials than they've ever been, and uh, more people out there
0: doing it, and uh, it uh, it's 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 harder. You know, right, we're in the peak or even the post-peak of this comedy boom, mm-hmm. and there's just everybody has an hour, right? Not yeah, everybody has three. Yeah, but everybody has at least one hour out mm-hmm. there. It seems.
1: Yeah, I, I you know I will say after uh, takes the third, which was on Comedy Central and later Netflix. I never thought I was going to top it, and I I although i'm still editing uh this new one which is mm-hmm. called more than loud um <laughs> i i i i i i hope it does and i hope that you just if at any point i i'm not moving forward i will get out it's just i don't i i don't want that in my head i don't want it's i only enjoy moving forward and trying new things and taking risks and i can tell you when we taped more than loud which we did two shows and b- part of the struggle with editing and why it's, it's 99% one show is I'm never in the same place. So some jokes, I'm up there waving the microphone around and going, you know, like nuts, and then I'm sitting down doing the same joke, soft-spoken. So
0: to edit it together is...
1: It, it just, it couldn't make sense. I mean, what you're going to see is one show.
0: Although that might make for a nice uh, director's cut. Is yeah. to just do one where it really does shift from
1: well we we we're a having a lot of shift. we're having a lot of trouble editing this because uh and I don't want to go into detail but you know we had three cameras that didn't didn't work the entire show oh, wow. that failed like at different points and <laughs> it's just a really tough edit and there's uh it it's uh it will look like no other I don't think because we shot it very a lot of handhelds mm-hmm. and very you know because I'm moving around so much right. and I'm, I'm I go out into the audience and uh it's. I. I. I don't think it's gonna. Kind of, I. I think it. It should feel different, than a. Than a traditional three or five camera shoot where you go back and forth and pull back at applause breaks and stuff.
0: What's the? Uh, I always ask my guests this to help close it out. What's the one thing you would tell? Piece of advice you would tell, a new person who comes up to you and says they want to get into it. I mean, obviously, 2017 is a completely different comedy world than mm. 1991.
1: Yeah. So
0: what would you tell them?
1: Well, I love, you know, like when I was in Detroit this week and the MC was just, you know, watched every single one of my shows. I love when I go into those markets, like North Carolina's one. You know, you work, and that's a club that's been around forever, Good Nights. And that comedy community comes out and watches every show.
0: And I presume the MC and other people, the open micers, will try to corner you at some point during the weekend and ask you for advice.
1: Yeah, and that's, and uh, I love that. You know, in Boston, there was such a rich tradition of pa- passing on material, and you know, uh, you know, Gary Shanling, who was my greatest mentor, passed on so much material. So, not only is it my obligation, but uh, that's not even the right word because it brings me such joy and pleasure to pass it along uh, t- to the next generation. And there's nothing better than when you don't even have to come up to me and, and compliment me when they have a really intelligent question that shows insight and shows that they love the craft as much as I do. So I I, I think what might be missed from comedian, if you want to go back to that, Dwayne. is I would not be in there if if Jerry felt at all I didn't have the respect for stand-up comedy that I do. And that's the tradition that I love is that people that get up there and will talk about things and try and hit it in a way that it's never been hit before. I love that. So when these guys come up to me and they want advice,
0: I love it. And every single person needs different advice. Sure. You know. What for, for you, you know, mentioning Gary Shanling as a, as a great mentor, what, what was the thing that, that helped you the most from him? He never, 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 never glossed over
1: or complimented or he told you what you needed to hear and it might have hurt. And I'm telling you, things he told me 10 years ago are starting to make sense now. Hmm. It's evergreen, his advice. And I was the same way. And he was patient with me. I would, if I were to go back when we first met, I would say that some of the, my things that I did would have been, uh, Uh, annoying if I could see him today I would go how annoying was I (laughs) (laughs) why did you put up with so much (laughs) but he you know he made he forced me to he because he knew I was a guy that would listen and take his advice and move move stand-up comedy forward as best as I could and respect it and He was just such a loving, caring guy that you just have this long discussion with him and then a week later he'd have four books for you to read and he would follow up and he would write an email and say, hey listen, I don't think I I was listening enough or gave you enough time concerning this, I don't want you to, he was just so loving and just, you know, you just study a guy like that. He was generous, he allowed me to write for him. Um, I wrote for him for the Emmys and you watch gary and what's genius about gary what's genius about a woody allen is they're laconic they're as concise with their words okay and they are so true to their character it's beautiful so you take like a simple this is a gary line that i love this is during spam emails and he'd say if i get another if i get another email for penal for, uh, for erectile dysfunction, this is what he is. If I get, it's the worst impression ever. I'm so, I shouldn't even do the. He would he would hit me if he heard me doing an impression. He said, "If I if I get one if I get one more email for erectile dysfunction, I'll go broke." And what's genius is it takes such an illogical jump. You know where it's going, and he doesn't say, you know, I've well, got a problem. It's just so perfect and so Gary. And that's beautiful. And you, you know, if you want to get into comedy, you study that. You study Kennison, the first time he went on uh, the, the the Tonight Show and the chances he took. You know, these are beautiful, beautiful moments.
0: Well, Orny, uh, I feel like this was a beautiful moment listening <laughs> to you. I hope I asked some intelligent questions. Uh, if not, I will leave those for Oprah. No, you, uh, <laughs> this was, I, I appreciate somebody who, uh,
1: who uh, has given it thought and everything and uh, I thank everyone who, who made it to the end listening.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Ernie. Thank you. Last things first. This episode of The Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brezel at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website thecomicscomic.com for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at Patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean L. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Last things first. Last things first.